Plagiarism is a big deal, and it is a serious problem that every preacher faces, whether they realize it or not. Uh, we are dealing with uh, right now just an outbreak of plagiarism that is becoming more and more evident among preachers. Um, I could I could spend hours telling you stories. Uh, I almost uh, really uh, every at least every month, at least once a month, if not more, I receive a call from somebody, a deacon in a church, or a layperson in a church or a staff member in a church, and their pastor has been found to be plagiarizing sermons. And I don't mean just plagiarizing a paragraph or two here or a full outline. I'm talking about essentially taking the sermons, you know, of somebody and uh, preaching them as their own. That is a growing problem. Uh, It is an integrity issue. It is an ethical issue. Obviously, moral issue, Uh, it's a professional issue, a personal issue, and a practical issue. It's all of these things. And plagiarism has become a real problem. And so preachers uh, need to make sure that they are not falling into the trap of plagiarism. Well, hey, guys, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. Uh, My name is Mike Neglia, and our guest for this week is Dr. David Allen. Uh, Now, David Allen has not just been preaching for a long time. Uh, Dr. Allen has been instructing and coaching and mentoring preachers for a long time. He's been uh, teaching homiletics since uh, the 1980s either in a bachelor level or master's or even PhD level. He is the founding dean of the School of Preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a distinguished professor of preaching. He is the director of the Center for Expository Preaching and has recently started a ministry called preachingcoach.com, which he'll speak about at the end of the interview. Well, I said this to him at the end, and I'll say it at the beginning. Uh, Dr. Allen is who I want to be when I grow up. Uh, Just a a lifetime of not only preaching God's word, but helping to inspire and to equip others to do the same. So in this conversation, uh, we speak about the, the allure and the danger of plagiarism for preachers today, uh, which is an incredibly relevant topic uh, and one that I do hope that you'll pay careful attention to. Uh, we also speak about uh, what text-driven preaching should look like and how to really highlight the main point of a passage with some really practical examples. And of course, we speak about the importance and the necessity of coaching for preachers. And so guys, we are getting closer and closer to our next in-person training event, February 18th and 19th in Costa Mesa, California. We're gathering together for like a 24-hour preaching and teaching workshop. There's going to be short talks from the front, followed by interactive group work led by trained and qualified leaders and mentors. We want to help you to succeed in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. There's still time to register. Go to expositorscollective.com and you can find out details concerning registration costs 
and even accommodation that's nearby in Costa Mesa. Okay, so I wanna encourage you, hopefully I'll see you in person in Costa Mesa. If not, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. David Allen. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Uh, thrilled to be speaking with our guest this week, Dr. David Allen. Uh, David, good morning. How are you doing? Hey, a wonderful Mike, and thank you for the privilege of being with you. Uh, well, well, well. Hey, I'm just going to jump straight into it. You know, at the intro, we heard all about your accomplishments and your publishing, etc. But I want, rather than to focus on your accolades, uh, could you bring us into that awkward first time you ever preached? How, how did it go? What was your first sermon like? <laughs> well, I'll be happy to do that. Actually, that takes me back quite a bit, all the way to 1974. I was called to preach when I was 16 years old. I was playing baseball in high school, and I really sensed God's call on my life to preach. And immediately, I began to have opportunities to uh, preach in little youth revivals uh, in Floyd County, Georgia, in the state where I grew up. And I remember I was doing a youth revival on a Friday night. I had an opportunity in February of 1974 uh, to preach my first sermon. My first sermon was on the parable of the prodigal son, which I thought was pretty appropriate for a youth revival and as a young preacher. And so I labored hard to write that sermon and develop it and preach it. And uh, I, I actually have a cassette recording of that sermon. Do you? Yes, and uh, I, I've got it. Uh, I haven't listened to it in a few years now, but I did go back and listen to it a few years ago, and it's just, oh, my goodness, from my perspective, it's awful today. Uh, you know, it was my very first sermon. But, you know, the power, is the, wor- the power is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in preaching because that night when I preached that text, my very first sermon God was pleased to save two teenage boys. Two teenage boys came to faith in Christ that night. And that spurred me on to realize that, oh my goodness, preaching is God's method of of, uh, getting His gospel out, and I am one of His young preachers. And from that moment until this, I've never lost the magic um, and the excitement of uh, preaching from that very first sermon uh, that I preached. Yeah, and and how could it not? Uh, you know, um, uh, oftentimes, and I'm sorry for even saying, oh, it was an awkward or or it was bad. But yet, um, seeing the Lord, the Lord use it and have His hand be upon it from a very young age and at the very first one. I mean, how could you not want to do this for the rest of your life? Absolutely, I was hooked from the very beginning. You know, there's something just unique about the preaching event. Uh, it's different from any other speaking situation because the Holy Spirit is involved in the process of the preaching event. You have the man of God, you have the people of God who are listening, you have even some unsaved people who are listening. But in the process of preaching God, the Holy Spirit is taking His Word and the personality of the preacher, the vessel who's bringing that word, and supernaturally working uh, on the hearts and lives of people. And it's utterly amazing at how God does what He does, and uh, it's just a great privilege that we have to be a part of God's plan of communicating His gospel to the world. Yeah. 
Yeah, you mentioned it's it's I, what I've heard a lot of people say is they talk about their first sermon and they say something along the lines of, "I'm just so thankful that it wasn't recorded. I'm just so I'm thankful just, that it was <laughs> it was back in the '80s, back before people recorded things." But yeah. but yours, you know, bucks that trend, and it was from the '70s, and it actually was recorded, and you actually listened back to it. Um, so I guess the question this is a roundabout way of saying like, what were the things? that were present in that first sermon that you're glad is no longer present anymore. <laughs> or basically another way of saying it is like, is how have you grown since then? But yes. is there anything that you remember hearing from that tape and thinking, Oh, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. Well, I, uh, yes, there are several things. I'll start with delivery. One is of course, I was an inexperienced preacher uh, and so there were many aspects of my delivery at that point that needed great work. And uh, I reflect on that when I listened to that old cassette tape from 1974. And I've, I've learned a great deal and developed a great deal in my communication, in my delivery. Part of that is by experience. Part of it is just working uh, on uh, these kinds of things uh, for focusing on good aspects of communication theory and delivery. So that would be a part of it. But also, I think I have really grown from the standpoint of hermeneutics, uh, how to really interpret a text, making sure that I'm contextually correct. Uh, you know, I, I had that prodigal son, man, I had it. You should have heard it. I had him in the far country of sex and drugs and alcohol and, you know, all of that. And, of course, by analogy and by application, uh, I think that is a legitimate thing to do as long as you're making it clear that the meaning of the text and the application of the text are two different things. And I probably merged those <laughs> uh, a little bit too much uh, in my early days of preaching, but now I understand better uh, how to communicate textual meaning that is hermeneutically sound and yet also make the application that is personal and necessary. I think that's something that's different from my early years of preaching uh, to uh, what I have learned today as well. Okay, so kind of merging the horizons of what the text meant back then and then an application today. So that was kind of in the early days or the early day, that was one and the same. And now you see them as different, both valuable, but not the same thing. Right, right. And is this something that you think that is a common mistake for young or for new preachers? Or was that a unique um, Al David, Allian, David Allendian um, error back then? Kind of to coin a phrase. Of my experience of having taught preaching now for 35 years tells me that that's a common mistake that, uh, and not just younger guys, although younger guys peer, uh, tend to make that mistake, but it's not limited to them. Experienced preachers can make the same hermeneutical gaffes uh, that uh, are just, uh, and they range from minor to egregious. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, the uh, importance, though, of rec of having a proper hermeneutic, uh, the the pro and the importance of context. Things mean what they mean in context, and making sure that we are keenly aware of that, and and the importance of uh, locating a our text of scripture within its context, within its the biblical theology, the book that it falls within, the kind of pericope 
the kind of genre that it is, for example, is a narrative is different from a letter. And a letter is a bit, is different from Psalm 23, which is more poetic in nature. And one of the things I've learned from that first experience to today is to, is to give proper credence and respect to the genre of my text of Scripture. Because too much preaching is cookie-cutter preaching. And we don't reflect and respect the genre, uh, which, which changes the dynamic of how to preach a text. You don't preach a narrative in the exact same way that you would preach a letter of the New Testament. There are commonalities, but the genre is different. The narrative is a story. It has characters and plot and dialogue and rising tension and all of these wonderful things. That needs to be reflected in the sermon. Preaching Romans 8, Romans 8 is not a narrative. It is a logical discourse that develops, and it's much more expository in the sense of the communication relations that exist in that kind of a text. And therefore, the preaching of that text would be a little bit different. Again, there would be a number of similarities, but there are a number of differences. These are the kinds of things that I've learned uh, you know, over the years uh, to make sure that we uh, don't become cookie-cutter preachers. Everything is not three points. Uh, everything shouldn't be alliterated, and everything shouldn't end with a poem. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're shooting fire there. <laughs> some people love their three points and some people love their poems at the end. Um, well, and I do, I just say it should not always be that the operative word here is always, sometimes my preaching is three points, but, uh, sometimes, uh, my preaching is less than that. And, uh, there are reasons for that. Yeah. And, and on, on that note, I would just say to the listeners, um, we recently had a great interview with uh, Christy Anyabile, and she has an upcoming book um, coming out on, on literary genre in the Bible and how we understand each, each of them. So that'll be in the show notes if you want to hear more about, about genre. So in addition to Christy Anyabile's upcoming book, <laughs> um, do you have any other books, David, that you might recommend if somebody wants to understand genre or, or how these various types of books or, or types of literature in the Bible should be taught? Well, I would, I, you know, at the uh, risk of a shameless self-plug here, but uh, I have a book that I co-edited with Danny Aiken called Text-Driven Preaching. And uh, the, in that book, in my chapter in that book on how to prepare a text-driven sermon, there's a little section in there on genre and why genre is important. Then there's an entire chapter in that book also on the role of genre in preaching and why that is important. So from a preaching standpoint, I would point people uh, to that book. It was published in 2010 by B&H Academic, uh, and particularly the chapter on the subject of genre in that book, uh, would be helpful. And then all the footnotes there uh, would point out other other works uh, that are available. To kind of get a handle on that, uh, you might want to just pick out a sort of a, 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 a preaching dictionary or a preaching uh, handbook. There are three or four of those on the market. And, the, and there will always be in those, in each of those, a segment on genre. Uh, the importance of genre for preaching, and, and a person could read up on that a little bit in a short uh, two or three page uh, article on what is genre, how to distinguish uh, genres, and that kind of thing. Uh, you would, I think you would find that to be very helpful. Another work that does a pretty good job with handling that is the book entitled Power in the Pulpit, 
which is written by Jerry Vines and Jim Shaddix. And that book has a good section on genre and the importance of reflecting the genre uh, in your preaching. These are maybe some suggestions that I would have for those that would like to pursue this a bit further. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm actually yeah, glad to hear you reference the, uh, the text-driven preaching book. It's a, a wonderful contribution. Uh, thank you for your work in, in putting that into the world uh, 11 years ago. Um, uh, the title, I know that the title I've, I've, I've heard and seen you kind of um, reference the idea, the notion of text-driven preaching. Yes. Um, what, what does that mean to you? Although, actually, I realize that question is a terrible question um, for an interpreter. What does that mean to you? But I think that you probably helped coin that phrase. So when you coined the phrase text-driven preaching, what did you want to communicate through that? Let's yes. get the authorial intent, not the reader response. Well, that's exactly right. Well, I've been teaching preaching now for about 35 years, and I think, as far as I know, I'm the one who coined the term text-driven preaching. The reason I chose that term uh, many years ago uh, in my classes is I teach expository preaching. I believe that the expositional method is the best method of preaching. But I have noticed uh, that over the years, that term expository preaching has been stretched into infinity. And people put under that category of expository preaching <laughs> uh, so many things that really don't reflect or don't fall uh, adequately or properly under that category. And so I chose the term uh, text-driven preaching to explain what I mean by expository preaching. And basically, text-driven preaching is preaching that attempts to stay true to three things. Number one, the substance of the text. Number two, the structure of the text. And number three, the spirit of the text. And what we mean by that, those words, number one, the substance of the text is what is that text saying? What is it talking about? What's its theme? What is it talking about? And then number two, what is it saying about what it's talking about? And really, every text does that. Or, or every text, there's, it has substance to it. And good expository preaching is preaching that stays true to that text. You don't go off into 10 different texts in a sermon. You don't do proof text preaching, which is very popular. A lot of people do that. That's not, not the best kind of expository preaching. You've got to stay true to that substance of the text uh, and uh, stay with your wingman, so to speak, there. And then number two, the structure of the text, God the Holy Spirit, in His inspiration of those human writers— has designed or has communicated meaning via structure. And that structure is uh, not only uh, what we call syntax and grammar, that is true, but there's a meaning structure communicated underneath that called semantics. And semantics is just the word for meaning. And so there is a meaning. There are communication relations that are being communicated. And one of the key, key significant principles is an author communicates meaning in mainline important information and secondary subordinate information, which is com communicated in subordinate clauses. So good preaching will want to let the structure of the text, mainline information and subordinate information, understand that very carefully in the exegetical process and then reproduce that in the preaching, in the sermon outline and in the actual content of the message. So true expository preaching is preaching the Bible. 
Topical preaching is preaching about the Bible. Expository preaching is preaching the Bible. So we're staying true to the structure of the text. And then number three, we're staying true to the spirit of the text. Now, by the word spirit there, I mean spirit with a lowercase s. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit, though that is so crucial in preaching the role of the Spirit. But what we mean is the tone and the genre of the text. And therefore, good expository preaching needs to reflect that. And if you go back and listen in history to some expository sermons of even famous preachers, uh, they preach a, a narrative the same way they preach a letter, which is the same way they preach Psalm 23, uh, and it's three points, and it's just it doesn't reflect really the structure of the text, and it certainly doesn't reflect the genre if they are preaching a narrative like Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, and they chop that up into three points. Uh, no, it's a narrative, and it has seven scenes that unfold with with uh, rising tension, and that needs to be reflected. The genre, the spirit, uh, the tone of the text, uh, the various psalms are different uh, genres. I mean, it's one genre, but there are different subgenres there. You have Hallel psalms, you have the praise psalms, then you have the lament psalms. Those are just the opposite in terms of how you must communicate them. And so basically, text-driven preaching is preaching that attempts to stay true to the substance, structure, and spirit of the text. And really, from my perspective, that's what genuine expository preaching was intended to be. So text-driven preaching is not reinventing the wheel. Actually, we are simply saying, look, here's what real exposition is supposed to be. We're just refining it a little bit and bringing it back to its roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Further defining rather than creating a new, a new, yeah. Correct. That's, yeah. And in and, and my circles, you know, um, saved into and serving in the, the Calvary Chapel network of churches, like the, the phrase that we would use, and it's probably not unique to us, but is, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Right. And it's, that's a handy way of explaining expository preaching. However, if, if you do that, like the, that, that kind of implies that like every single verse is as important as every other verse. Right. And, and of course, like, like we believe in inspiration, all that kind of thing. Of course, it all fits together. But yet in, in a section, there is actually a main point and the main right. point should be emphasized that, you know, the text should drive the preaching. Um, and it's not that, you know, if you have 30 verses that you should spend one minute on each verse, but no, what's the main point? What's the spirit of it? What's the structure of it? And that can be, can be emphasized. So again, nothing against chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But I think that there's ways of doing that that uh, can miss the main point. And nothing against expository preaching, obviously from you, but let's let's do it as best as we can where, where the main point is given prominence and uh, priority. Mike, that's an important uh, point that you have made, a very important point. All of Scripture is inspired by God, and we believe that 100%. But by the same token, a communicator, an author of Scripture, does not communicate everything at the same level of emphasis and focus in terms of meaning. Sometimes the important, in fact, all of the time, the usual, almost always, the important information is communicated in what we call mainline information, uh, things that are independent clauses, for example. And then the subordinate secondary material is encoded by an author in subordinate clauses. You see it in the grammar. 
Uh, an author may give one exhortation, for example, like he does in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That's one sentence in the Greek New Testament. And there's one imperative there. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, grammatically, it's a hortatory subjunctive for those of you that know Greek, but but that's a, a form of an imperative. It's a command. In other words, everybody understands that. But then that text has both before and after that command participles. Now, by definition, a participial clause is a subordinate clause. It is a modifier. And the text of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 has one main point encoded in the command, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then there are three participial clauses that modify and are subordinate to that main point that tell us how to run the race. So how do we do it? Well, we run the race seeing that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Point number two, how do we run? Subpoint number two, how do we run? We run laying aside. Look at that participle, laying aside the weight and the sin. And then how do we run the race? Fulfilling the command. Point number, subpoint number three, how do we do it? Verse two, keeping our eyes. Another participial clause, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. So the point of text driven preaching or expository preaching, is this, on that text as an example. You got one main point in that text. The author encodes that main point uh, with the command. And then you have three subpoints, all encoded in parallel participles that essentially tell you how to run that race. So there is the structure of the text. You got one main point, you got three subpoints, and then you just simply pick that up, move it over, create a communication outline from that exegetical outline, and there's your sermon. That's what we mean by text-driven preaching. Wow. Well, yeah, Dr. Allen, I really appreciate, yeah, taking what, what I said, and almost as I said it, I felt like, oh, that's so clunky, or I don't want that to be taken out of context, to say something along the lines of not every verse is as important as every other verse. And, um, but yeah, thank you for kind of like showing from a grammatical sense how, how that is the case, how there is a main point and supporting points to it. And likewise, our sermons should, should ha- follow the similar pattern. There's a main point and the other things support or flow out of that main point. And, and this is what, why I chose the term text-driven preaching. The text itself drives the sermon, not the other way around. The text, the structure of the text drives the structure of the sermon. You may have a text that has two or three main points. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 is one of my favorite texts to preach uh, as well. And if you look at that text carefully, you have three parallel commands, verses 22, 23, and 24, parallel commands. Draw near, hold fast, stir one another up to love and good deeds. No one of those commands is placed above the other in terms of importance or focus. Three parallel exhortations. And then everything else in the paragraph of Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 is subordinate to those three things. And you see it in the grammar, the structure, the clauses that modify it. Uh, The author of Hebrews, whomever he may have been, I wrote my PhD dissertation, by the way, on the authorship of Hebrews. So I have a little theory about that. You do. It's it's an obscure one too. (laughs) Yeah. Whomever he may have been, has encoded that structure such that you have three main points there. So now there's a sermon 
that's different in structure from Hebrews 12, because in Hebrews 12, what do you have in the Greek New Testament? You have one main point. But in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, you have three main points, which the author has clearly brought out, and a number of subpoints. So you reflect that in your preaching. That's exactly what we mean by text-driven preaching. Wow. Well, yeah, I think I'd, I'd, I'd love to just keep on talking about this, but I want to I pivot and do a, maybe a hard transition um, into like the next thing I'd like to ask you about. Um, you've, you've written recently um, a, a little ebook on, on plagiarism uh, in the pulpit, and maybe if I could just ask a, a kind of a pointed question, is plagiarism really a big deal or not? Plagiarism is a big deal, and it is a serious problem that every preacher faces, whether they realize it or not. Uh, we are dealing with uh, right now just an outbreak of plagiarism that is becoming more and more evident among preachers. Um, I could I could spend hours telling you stories. Uh, I almost uh, really uh, every at least every month, at least once a month, if not more, I receive a call from somebody, a deacon in a church, or a layperson in a church or a staff member in a church, and their pastor has been found to be plagiarizing sermons. And I don't mean just plagiarizing a paragraph or two here or a full outline. I'm talking about essentially taking the sermons, you know, of somebody and uh, preaching them as their own. That is a growing problem. Uh, It is an integrity issue. It is an ethical issue, obviously, moral issue. Uh, It's a professional issue, a personal issue, and a practical issue. It's all of these things. And plagiarism has become a real problem. And so preachers uh, need to make sure that they are not falling into the trap of plagiarism. And it's difficult because... Every preacher, no one is purely as 100% original. There's no such thing as that. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And so what the, the Scripture is itself set in stone. So we're all preaching the same text, or we're supposed to be doing that. And, and so how, what happens is sometimes preachers get nervous about, well, I'm not that good, or I, I feel like I need to go to the people that are well-known, and how do they do it, and they're, they're considered great preachers. And so we want to copycat, and we feel pressured to do that, especially with social media today. And so there's a real temptation to go out there and just say, man, he did it better than I could ever do it, and so I'm just going to take what he did and do that. Now, the problem with that is you are living a lie when you do that. You are, it's an issue of integrity. And if you're going to do that, don't do it, by the way, but if you're going to do it, at least have the ethical fortitude to say, hey, today's sermon, uh, you know, comes from uh, Charles Spurgeon, (laughs) or today's sermon, I'm taking a John Piper sermon, you know, or whatever, an Adrian Rogers sermon, and I'm just preaching it to you today. At least have the integrity to do that, because if you don't do that, I'll tell you this, in today's social media world, any 10-year-old with a telephone, with a cell phone, can find out that you've plagiarized in a millisecond, even in the midst of your own sermon. And sure. so you you are on dangerous grounds if you plagiarize. So, yes, plagiarism is a serious problem, and we need to uh, 
avoid it like the plague. Research, yes. Uh, use a lot of use a lot of material, yes. But but distill that uh, through your own mind and personality, such that you are utilizing material in a way that is creative, but not plagiarizing it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when you describe, when I imagine a preacher getting up there and saying, hey, you know, today's sermon comes to you from Charles Spurgeon or comes, you know, like that, that for me sounds so, sounds so awkward and almost embarrassing right. to say, but not nearly as awkward or as embarrassing as somebody saying, hey, I was doing some research and I found out that you stole that whole thing from John Piper. Right. Like that's, <laughs> right. that's worse. So the first, yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, is, are you being kind of facetious when you're saying that somebody, if someone's going to steal a sermon, they should at least acknowledge it at the beginning? Or do you just think it's probably best to not steal sermons? Oh, no, it's out? best. Don't do that at all. Okay, yeah. yeah. I just want to tease that out. I'm sure that's what you meant. Absolutely, yes. I would say just don't do that at all. Now, <laughs> it, it may be the case. You may find somebody, uh, there might be a sermon somewhere, and you just feel like, I mean, there's just no way to improve right. on that. And I just would really like to preach that, at least mostly the way it is. Okay, well, maybe do that once every five years, okay? But if you do, uh, make sure you tell, make sure you up front explain, look, this idea and this outline and this sermon essentially came from so-and-so, and and I want to acknowledge that up front. But my advice would be, uh, if you're going to do that, maybe, you know, do it once every five years and that's about it. Write your own sermons. Learn from other people. Uh, you know, milk a lot of cows, but make your own butter is really the way it has to work if you're a preacher. And there's a way to do that without plagiarizing. Yeah, People know when you're plagiarizing, by the way. They, find, they, they can figure it out pretty quickly. They're not tone deaf uh, to that. You know, if you get up there and you, you're preaching on Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, you know, and, or, you're, or you're preaching on creation and you get up and you say, God spoke and the stars scurried to their respective orbits like sparks off the anvil of omnipotence. Well, your people know that that's not how you talk. Yeah. yeah. And they, uh, they know, they hear you say that and they think, well, what has he been smoking? You know, uh, they know that you can't preach that way and don't preach that way. Now, that's how Spurgeon said it in his sermon in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. But you can't, you know, you can't really do that because it's just not you. And that's the problem with plagiarism. It is a failure to recognize God wants you to be you. There is only one you. There are no copies of you. And God uses preachers and their personalities. And therefore, uh, we don't need to plagiarize. And uh, people don't realize that... uh, they, th- they may think that the audience is not going to catch on, but it's pretty easy to tell the difference between the voice of a parrot uh, and, the, and a human voice. Right. The parrot may say exactly the words that, same, that human said, but everybody can, de- can detect when it's a parrot and when it's a human. Yeah. Yeah, they don't really. Yeah, they don't. They don't mean it. It's they're getting the words right, but it's not. It's not their their words. Right. Now, it's not now their your, words. Yeah. What's your thought on like like attribution though? So that that you know, striking the anvil and the sparks flying. You know, that's that's a great image. It's I, a great I, image. I I would love to use it, and and I think sure. if I were to, I, I would say, hey, listen, Spurgeon said it this way. Like, yeah. I, in in your opinion which is educated and I, I value it. Like how many quotes do you think that someone should use in a sermon? Like what, what is the, the, the too much uh, point with, with the quotations from others, even if they're attributed? Yeah, yeah. I'll answer that in two words, not many. 
Is that right? You okay. will destroy a sermon if you convert it to a research paper. Okay. So that, you know, you're in your sermon, you're always saying, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, or Adrian Rogers said this, or John Wesley said this, or you give a quote and then you give your footnote in the sermon to it. John Wesley, uh, you know, in his New Testament notes on page 58, you know, yeah, it, right. you, you destroy... A sermon is an oral, oral event, oral in the sense of you are orally communicating it, oral, A-U-R-A-L, in the sense that it's being heard sure. by listeners. So we're, we're, a sermon is not a written document. It may originally have been written, a yeah, manuscript yeah. form, but when it is preached, it is not a, it's not a written discourse, it's oral discourse. And you will destroy the spontaneity and the communication of oral discourse with too many quotations. So what I do is, if I do a direct quotation, you do need to attribute that. Yeah. yeah. But if you want to modify that enough where uh, it's, it's coming through your creative expression, at that point you don't have to alliterate it. I mean, I'm sorry, you don't have to... Uh, uh, give the source necessarily, uh, but but you do have uh, because it, it would be impossible. Preachers use so many different sources. If I have all the time in the world when I'm preparing a new sermon, I'm reading twenty commentaries. I use I, that now. This is just me. Not everybody does this. I have a large personal library. I have twenty five thousand volumes in my personal library that I've collected through the years. I don't even have that many on Lagos. <laughs> Yeah, on the book of Hebrews alone, I have 200 commentaries, which is my favorite book in the New Testament. So if I'm preaching a sermon out of Hebrews, I'm going to read 20 of those at least. Now, again, this is not for everybody. I've been doing this a lot of years, and I've taught preaching for a lot of years. But not only that, I'm going to read sermons of different people. I have a collection of sermon books in my library. And then I'm going to read some, you know, other resources, uh, theological dictionaries and other things. I'm going to read a lot of stuff, and uh, including ideas and illustrations I may get out of a magazine or somewhere else, TV show, something. I'm going to utilize a ton of material. And then I'm going to squeeze that through the alembic of my mind or through the sieve of my mind uh, and and down to my expression of what I have learned when I preach on that text, it's 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 absolutely impossible to cite then every source you read. It's not a research paper. Sure, you can't cite and footnote. You know every source you've read and that kind of thing in a sermon. You kill the sermon. But so uh, the rule is if it is if it is direct quotation that does need to be cited. But you need to express everything else somehow in such a way that you don't have to cite or, or that you can minimize it to say, you know, Wesley uh, said, and then you, you don't, you're not directly quoting, but you don't say any more than, you know, Wesley said. But you can't have too many Wesley saids in your sermon uh, because then you dilute uh, and really destroy the effectiveness of the communication. So you have to figure out how to everything you're going to use, yet uh, yet extrude it through your own uh, creative mind, and then put that together in the actual sermon. Yeah. Do you think that the verse 
um, and I've heard this verse quoted applying to this, you know, speaking about Jesus saying that like he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Do you think this is a, a you know, do you think this speaks into here that too many quotations make us sound more like scribes and less like an authoritative preacher? No question about it. That was the thing. The scribes were constantly quoting the scribes before them. <laughs> you know, Hillel said or Shammai said or whatever. They're quoting the uh, all the people that the, the rabbi, rabbi so-and-so said or whatever. Uh, you can't do that in a sermon, right? You wind up diluting it, distorting it, uh, eliminating the, the communication power of it. And so, yeah, it does speak to that kind of thing. I, I think, of course, Jesus, of all people, he's the creator of, of all anyway. Of course, Jesus did not have to give sources in, in one sense. But by the same token, your point is well taken. The people recognize, wow, this guy's not quoting everybody else. He speaks with authority. The text is our authority in preaching. If we can kind of bring it back to that for a quick moment. The text is king, and so the text is our authority. If you stay through, true to the text, you preach what the text says and then illustrate it and apply it, uh, you, there's your authority. People will recognize that. They will recognize uh, you're not quoting so-and-so over here and somebody over there. Uh, you are letting the text itself be the authority because you are preaching the meaning of that text of Scripture. Right, right. Yeah, which has its kind of, yeah, inbuilt divine authority. Um, much, much, yeah, it, I mean, it is, you could say, the words of Christ and, right. and, and have that inbuilt authority. I was looking over, my, my wife um, was teaching the women's Bible study. She doesn't often teach it, but occasionally she does. And um, I actually, uh, we had a good, we had a really good like date night or well, date morning actually of just like, she had her rough draft notes. We just like went through them together and I, I was looking over her notes and it was, it was really nice. And, um, the, 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 the coaching or whatever that I gave her was like, I looked through them and I, and I just crossed out a bunch of quotes. Um, you know, it was like maybe two or three from Spurgeon. There was, you know, like one or two from David Guzik and then somebody else and somebody else. And I'm like, Hey, listen, there doesn't need to be so many of these. Um, and then even, um, I even said like, with no disrespect to any of those aforementioned men, it's like, well, those quotes aren't even that, that great. You know, like, like what this person has said isn't, like, you could say that. And it's not even a, a completely unique phrase or completely unique thought. You could just right. put this into your own words. You don't have right. to, to draw in or pull in these other names over and over and over again, just one or two and then move on. That is absolutely correct. You've stated it, I think, very well. There, are What we call commonplaces, that's the technical term for it, or what we call common phrases, those are the kinds of things that you don't need to say, Abraham Lincoln said, uh, or Abraham Lincoln, because Lincoln may have used that metaphor or that simile, but so did 100 people before him. And so those are the kinds of things that, that absolutely don't need to be cited. Just use them, you know, sure. just get up there and use them or creatively uh, uh, change them up just a hair uh, to where uh, your, your own creativity, your own imagination is, is employed uh, in using that in your preaching. And that's perfectly fine as well to do. Yeah, glad glad to hear you say that because the earlier what we were talking about earlier about plagiarism being the absolute worst thing in the world, you know, and um, hopefully that, that doesn't cause people to then 
never want to be learning from other people, nor, or, nor, you know, we want to be educated people learning from the Lord and from the the teachers that he's gifted the church. Um, Absolutely. uh, Yeah. And continue. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, I just want to maybe highlight. So I was doing a bit of coaching, uh, to my wife with her women's Bible study. Uh, and then this final question, let me just cram this in there. So David, you, you coach preachers. Is, is that right? Why don't you talk to us about yes. preachingcoach.com? Yes. Uh, I crammed that in there. I, I wasn't going to let this interview end without cramming that in there. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to say a word about it. Yes, I launched uh, last October preachingcoach.com. We purchased that domain. And, uh, and so now I have a ministry to pastors and preachers, Bible teachers, on the de- dealing with all aspects of preaching, pastoral ministry, leadership. And I come in and come alongside and partner with preachers uh, in this. And people can find out more information about this by just going to preachingcoach.com. And our, uh, they'll see our website there. And on the homepage, they'll see information about that. They'll find out what we mean by text-driven preaching, the kind of preaching that I teach. But also, the ministry of coaching is a very important ministry. Preachers do need that. Not only experienced preachers still need coaching. Uh, coaching, by the way, is a common concept in the business world. Uh, my wife is a financial advisor uh, with uh, Edward Jones here. She has her own office here in the Dallas area. And uh, she is very good at what she does. She's done this a number of years. But she has a coach, a business coach. And they talk once a month. Uh, and her business coach uh, works with her and helps her. And so preachers need a coach as well in in helping them with preaching. Now, one of the things I know from personal experience in counseling preachers all over the place, but also from more recent research, about 46% of preachers do not feel a sense of confidence in their preaching. They recognize, you know, there's something here, I'm just kind of stale, or I'm not, you know, I've been doing this a while, and it's sort of, uh, I'm in a rut. And you know, a rut's nothing but a grave with both ends knocked out. And you get in a rut, and you're really in trouble. So people need a coach. You know, professional baseball players, uh, those teams have coaches. And baseball's probably my favorite sport, but in the baseball world, you not you don't just have one manager. You got several coaches. You have a batting coach and a pitching coach and a base coach and a fielding coach. You have other coaches. Every every major league team has actually at least six coaches, and, th- and these are professionals, the best of the best of the best. And even they need coaching. And so my view is that preachers need coaching. They need mentors. They need coaches. They need someone to come alongside them and partner with them to help them. In, these, in sermon preparation, in sermon delivery, to help them uh, see the blind spots they might miss. But someone who can just be there to help with uh, sermon development, uh, talk through a text and maybe give some ideas, that kind of thing. One of the men that I'm coaching now is a pastor in Spain. And uh, he and I meet weekly. He's one of uh, sort of a, one of my clients and partners in the preaching coach deal here. And uh, we're he's preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And so every week I work with him on his message. He gives me his work, what he's done so far, and I help tweak it with him. We talk about it, talk about how to deliver it, talk about those kinds of things. Uh, 
But then preachers get discouraged. They need a counselor. They need a friend, someone they can talk to. All of these things is what we're doing uh, with Preaching Coach. We can do it in an a la carte you know, way, or I have six-month packages and one-year packages where I can come together and partner with preachers. And all of that information uh, and more detailed I can give in a personal contact with someone if they're interested. But they can fill out the information on the webpage, on that homepage. At the bottom of the homepage, there's a contact sheet, a little button, fill that out, click that, fill it out, and then we'll contact you and talk to you more about how we might partner with you and what the cost of that might look like, what the time factor would be, and so forth. But yes, preaching, coaching in the area of preaching is what God's laid on my heart to do at this point after years of pastoral, of personally pastoring, and after years of teaching this in the academic world, I feel like God has brought this together uh, both practically and academically, where I can help preachers, regardless of where they are, I can help them, partner with them, help them to take their next step in preaching. Yeah, well, that sounds like, yeah, very, very exciting. And um, I, I love to hear it. One of the the modules at the Expositors Collective workshops that we do is is about preaching mentorships and really encouraging people to to set up these informal these relational uh, mentorships. And you know, some of the feedback that we get is like, yeah, that sounds that sounds nice, but it's kind of hard to find somebody. Um, or I guess what comes down often is is time. You know. Uh, uh, you know, I asked so and so, and and they said they don't have the time for it uh, right now, and so yeah, well, it's great if it's or- organic and if it's relational. Uh, perhaps it's very worthwhile to consider, you know, hiring a professional. Well, it is, or yeah, what I do is organic and relational because mm-hmm. basically someone comes to me and they and they say to me, now David here is my area of weakness, or here are the things I want to work on. Well, then that's what we do. We work on what you desire to work on. That's the genius of what we're doing. It's not you're signing up to take a class under me where you have to read my book or you have to listen to my lectures. No, this is a a one-on-one thing by Zoom Now, I'm going to do some uh, webinars as well. I've already done one. I'll be doing several more. Uh, But but this is the kind of thing where I would meet with somebody maybe once a week for an hour. Uh, You know, our six-month package, we would meet weekly for an hour. And uh, and we work on the things the preacher wants to work on. So, you know, you tell me, where do we we spend our time? And then I help you in the area you want help in. That's uh, sort of the genius of what we're offering here through this uh, preaching coach ministry. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for that that clarification, and sorry for carelessly referring to you as inor- inorganic and non relational. <laughs> not at all. You were not careless at all. You were correct. It is an organic thing, and uh, uh, we're trying to make it very personable. Yes. Okay. And um, yeah. Finally, um, you you had mentioned that um, in the coming year, in 2022, that there's going to be a, a podcast that's coming out uh, as well. Do you have a name for that? Is that is that already out? It is not out. It, it is not out. Uh, well, actually, yes. Actually, as man, of by January, the time this is broadcast, it probably will right, be. Right. It's going to be out in January. I'm not sure when the first one will be released. Got it. But our game plan is to basically do one podcast per week. It'll be under the Preaching Coach uh, nomenclature. Yeah. Uh, it'll it'll be called Preaching Coach with uh, uh, with Dr. David Allen. 
And uh, we may refine that name later, but that's what we're working on right now. But yes, that will be launching in January of 2022. And Lord willing, it'll be a weekly podcast, all things preaching. You know, one week, uh, one one session, we might talk about, hey, I'm, uh, you're going to preach the book of uh, of Ruth. How would you do that? How would you how would you preach Ruth? Um, and how many ser- sermons would you do, and how would you approach it? And so I would do a podcast on that. Another one might be, well, how to preach the Beatitudes. Another one might be on the subject of illustrations. How do you find and utilize good illustrations in preaching? Another might be communication. What what makes for good communication? Uh, and we'll do all of these kinds of things and more uh, are what we have planned uh, in this new podcast, All Things Preaching. Wow. Well, listen, you are literally who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so this is, this, is, uh, this is great. You see, yeah, your first sermon was when you were 16. My first yes. sermon was when I was 17. So you have a one-year head start on me. That explains why you've accomplished so much more with your life than, than I have because <laughs> of that one-year head start. But um, I'll catch up. I'll catch up one day. Oh, you certainly have, uh, Mike. You certainly will. But, you know, I, and I've got a few years on you. You're younger than I am, so... Uh, yeah. Well, there's that too. There's that too. But yeah, that's, I, I'm really excited to hear about all, all of that. And I, you know, as we talked about before we hit record, you know, I, I really think investing in preachers is such a, um, uh, you know, the, the yields are huge. And yes. um, I think that this is a sort of investment that, you know, is 60 or a hundredfold uh, growth to help a preacher improve is such a, a wonderful gift to that congregation and the generations to come. So appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you for what you're doing. And uh, thank you for the privilege of being a part of, of uh, your podcast today. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And um, yeah, to the listeners, um, I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. Uh, Now go subscribe to uh, the other one. Yeah, it's 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 a it, what is it, it's preaching coach podcast or yes, no, there'll be a link. Pre- we'll, we'll include a link. Make sure that you yeah, preachingcoach.com will get you everything you need to know. I do I do have a newsletter. Be happy to get you on that. That's totally free. Uh, if anybody wants that, again, they just go to preachingcoach.com. Go to the contact uh, info and they can sign up for the newsletter and they'll receive that, which would have all all the information of upcoming podcasts and webinars and uh, also information about what we're doing at Preaching Coach. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Allen. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure to work with you and share with you today. God bless you and God bless all of your listeners. Well, thanks again to Dr. Allen for being so generous with your time and sharing with me and us uh, all that you've learned over the decades of preaching and studying and even educating and coaching preachers. I just want to say again that the show notes are a resource to you. Uh, There you can find links to Dr. Allen's new podcast, as well as preachingcoach.com, as well as some previous interviews that I've done on this show having to do with literary genre, with Christy Anuabile, or even with coaching with Pilgrim Benham, Michael Payne, or others on preaching or mentoring. 
So if this is your first episode, welcome into the world of the Expositors Collective podcast. We've got more than 200 episodes in the backlog and in the show notes, we're guiding you or suggesting some that could be a good follow on from the episode that you've just heard. Well, I mentioned at the beginning, but uh, let me just say one last time, if you're on the fence about coming to Costa Mesa, February 18th and 19th, I really hope that you can make it and I would love to see you there. All right. All the best. See you next Tuesday. Thank you.